Okay, I'm going to be reading from John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, I was talking with a friend of mine this week about sorrow. Um, and just, uh, it was a good conversation. It was just kind of about all the weighty things going on right now and, and real reasons uh, to be sorrowful. And, you know, whether that's your college football team or um, just the weightiness of this year, uh, things like the, the pandemic, things like sickness, things like death around us, people have lost their jobs. Uh, just the intensity of the election cycle that we are in right now. Um, it can just make us sorrowful at times. And there's, a, there's an appropriate sorrow uh, that accompanies these things. Uh, as we were talking, it reminded me of this line from Shakespeare. It comes from Macbeth. It says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. And as I was contemplating just this passage and the sorrows that sometimes strike us on the face and that sometimes strikes heaven on the face, uh, I was just reminded that, you know, we're not alone in human history as people that have experienced sorrow. In fact, the context of this passage, the region of Galilee in first century was actually a pretty sorrowful time. It was a time of poverty. That was not a wealthy region. Uh, most of the good jobs had moved uh, away. The people seeking good jobs were moving away. It was a small part, um, small in terms of population, part of the world. It was a time of actually great political and religious unrest. So there was a lot of religious corruption going on at the time and the people knew it, but the religious leaders were so powerful that they really didn't know what to do. It was a time of great political unrest. As you know, the, the people at this time were under the oppression of the Roman government, of the Roman leaders, and everybody had a different opinion. Some people were more zealous. They said, we need to fight the Romans. Some people kind of said, look, we can kind of go along. We can make a deal with the Romans. And so there was all this turmoil. It was a very intense time. There was a lot of sorrow to go around, but a wedding, a wedding and a wedding 
was a time to forget about sorrow. It was a time to forget about the weighty things of this life and to take a break for a little while, to, to celebrate, to find joy and peace. And you know what? This is, this is one of the reasons I love weddings. I love going to weddings. It's a time for people to just cut loose. This is kind of what love is like. Um, you know, Paige and I, when we were falling in love, I mean, it was, it was cloud nine. It was just, it was dreamy time. Everything was just, everything was great, you know. Everything was wonderful, and it still is, you know. Um, but that's the way love is. That's the way a wedding is like. It's a time to forget about things, and it's to, to celebrate. But, but whatever a 21st century wedding that you've been in or that you've gone to or that you've experienced is like, these first century weddings, well, they were all the more intense. They, they weren't just an affair for one evening. They were several days long and the whole village, the whole region would have come to be a part of this wedding. But in the middle of the wedding, just when everybody's forgetting about all their troubles, just when everybody's finally kind of letting loose, letting their guard down a little bit, not having an intense moment in the middle of the wedding, the wine runs out. And I can almost see the people saying, of course the wine runs out. This is the kind of thing that always happens in Galilee weddings. This is the kind of thing that always happens. We don't have enough money. There's political unrest. People are being too scared. They're not being fearful. Now we all have to go home and face all of these things again. And this moment right here, this moment, is the moment that Jesus decides to begin his earthly ministry. This is a powerful text, and we can actually learn a lot from it, but, but four things that I wanna look at with you today that we can learn from this passage is what Jesus is like, how Jesus is different, what Jesus is doing, and fourthly, how we can get in on it. So first, what is Jesus like? What Jesus is like? Now, a lot of Christians, can get a little uncomfortable with this story. I mean, Jesus is at a party here. And he's not just at the party, he's bringing the party. He's providing the wine. The good wine that the master of the party says, man, now we're talking. Now the good stuff's out. Now the fun can really begin. And Christians have typically been a little more buttoned up than this. This story has made believers, Christians, nervous. It's made pastors nervous. Every Wednesday, we have a teaching meeting ahead of our sermon uh, time. We kind of talk about the text with several of the ministers and pastors on our staff. And Blake was saying this week that where he's from, Dodge County, Georgia, the pastors down there say that this wine that Jesus made was only one sixteenth of the potency of the wine today. They make the argument that Jesus wasn't trying to add to the party, but he was just trying to give the people a safe drink. I don't think that's how we're supposed to read this text. That doesn't seem to be the most natural reading of the text. In fact, what we see, we see Jesus actually creating better wine, uh, wine that the master of the feast, the one that is putting on the party is excited about. It's as if Jesus doesn't want the feast to end. He wants the people to stay. He wants the feast to continue. Now, it's worth kind of taking a, a break here and, and, and giving, if you'll give me like two minutes of historical nerd, nerdiness, um, it's worth saying, how did this understanding, this teetotaling understanding of the Bible 
kind of develop. Um, in Scripture, we certainly see warnings against drunkenness, right? We also see warnings against what drunkenness can lead to, right? So drunkenness itself not only can be a problem, drunkenness can lead to a lot of other problems, other sinful behaviors. So, so the Bible certainly gives us guide rails uh, around the use of alcohol, but it never calls for total abstinence, for, for certainly for everybody. So, so how was that kind of theology or understanding of the Bible developed? Well, here's a little history. There's a story. So it was the Industrial Revolution, okay? And, and for the first time in human history, people were being paid with large sums of money. They were getting paychecks. They were getting paid in cash oftentimes. Before this in history, people were much more of a self-producing kind of people. They didn't really rely on cash. So for example, if you wanted milk, you'd go milk the cow. If you wanted an egg, you'd go get an egg. Uh, if you wanted a chicken, you'd go to eat chicken, you'd go slaughter a chicken. If you wanted a fence, you'd cut down a tree and build a fence. So the people were much more sort of living off of the, the resources that they had. It was less of an exchanging kind of environment that we obviously understand today. But for the first time ever, people were going off, they were getting jobs and they were getting paid. And, and you always got paid. And this, this lasted even into the 20th century. You always got paid noon on Saturday. Noon on Saturday is when the payment dropped. So these guys would go and get their paycheck and they had more money than you know they ever knew what to do with in one paycheck. And so what would they do? They'd go with their buddies to the bar to celebrate. And, you know, one drink would lead to another and there was prostitutes and, and all of a sudden, it's Sunday morning and these guys show up to their families having spent their whole paycheck for the work of week and what's the wife doing? Well, she's <laughs> thinking, where's my husband been all night? And she's heading off to church. And so who does the wife tell about this immediate threat that she has? She, of course, tells her pastor. And so pastors, particularly in the 19th century, started to develop a theology for the best reasons, for the best reasons. They developed this theology from a place of compassion and from a place of love and goodwill toward this real problem that was in their congregation, toward these real, uh, these real needs that were in their congregation. But they started to develop a theology that wasn't true to the Bible. And, and I think this is helpful for us, and I want to give you this warning. This is where all false theology begins. I would say bad theology always begins with the best of intentions. Bad theology always begins with somebody wanting to make Jesus a little more palatable or, or wanting to make the Bible a little more functional or wanting to make the Bible good. And they, their intentions are good, their intentions are pure, but when you're not true to the text, when you're not true to what God has revealed, you can actually present a Jesus that is less courageous than he really is or less convictional than he really is, less compassionate than he really is or even as we see here, less joyful than he really is. The true Jesus is the Lord of the feast. He loves celebration. And this isn't some obscure story. I mean, this is where he began his ministry. This is how it all begins. Jesus is marked by joy, by celebration. You know what Jesus says in John 15? You know how you know you've been abiding with Christ? In John 15, it talks about abiding with Jesus. You know how you know? You know what Jesus kind of concludes that section with and says, here's the evidence. Here's how you know you're abiding with me. And he says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. 
and that your joy may be full. If you're a believer, you should be, you must be. If you're following the way of Christ, you must be marked by joy. So if you're a Christian and you're kind of finding your identity and how dull you are and how you never have fun because you're so pious, then you're not following the true Jesus. And if you're not a Christian because Christians are dull or Christians are boring or Christians never have any fun, then you're not rejecting the true Jesus. You're rejecting a false Jesus. No, the Jesus of the gospels, the Jesus that we see in scripture could not be more exciting I remember last year there was a, a woman that started coming to our church and she came, became to faith in Christ and she was baptized and I was asking her, how did you come to know Jesus? How did you become a Christian? And I'll never forget her response. She just said, I read the gospel of John and I fell in love with Jesus. She said, I, I thought he was so stiff. I always thought he was so dull. I always thought he was so hard, but he was so casual. He was so loving. He was so warm. He was so fun. He's the Lord of the feast. He brings the party. His ministry begins at a party. So this story can tell us a little bit about what Jesus is like, but can also tell us secondly about how Jesus is so different. How Jesus is so different. You know, in every system in this world, the way to prove yourself, everyone is searching for righteousness. Now, we think of righteousness in kind of a religious law-following um, category way. But no, no, everyone is searching for some righteousness or some justification to present themselves as right, as the one that's in the right, as the one that's been justified, as the one that's done the right thing. And everybody, every system of this world has a way by which you prove your righteousness. So what is righteousness to a college? It's a good SAT score or it's good grades in high school. So how do you get into a college? How do you prove your righteousness to a college? You, you know, you do good in high school. You get a good grade on your SAT. What is righteousness to a job? It's a good resume. It's a good, you went to college to a great place and did well. That's right. You got to prove your righteousness. You got to prove that you, there's something interesting that you've done enough to measure up. You know, and, and we do this in other ways, even like in the ways that we hint that we're, we're somebody. You know, you want to show up to the dance with the prettiest girl. You want to go to the class reunion with the most successful guy. I was hanging out last week uh, with some guys for a friend's 40th birthday. And you know what you do uh, when your friends turn 40? You go back and you listen to the music that was cool when you were cool when you were in high school and college. And so we were listening to the song Lose Yourself by Eminem, just thinking we were super cool. And I was, I was listening to this song, and you know what that song's all about? It's all about how do you justify yourself, right? You, you gotta lose yourself in the music, right? You, you only get one shot. Don't miss your chance to blow. This opportunity only comes once in a lifetime, yo. And so it's all about self-justification. How do you justify yourself? You know how you justify yourself? You, 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 you fulfill this moment, you do this thing. This is what the world always says. There's this famous interview with Madonna uh, in Vanity Fair magazine. And she says this, she says, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. 
My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. And you know one of the ways that people try to prove themselves, try to kind of put a display of themselves out there? You know one of the ways that people try to prove themselves? It's with their wedding. (laughs) A wedding says a lot about you, right? I mean, you talk to any wedding coordinator, you want to tell your story in this wedding. You want to show your identity in this wedding. And so there's a lot of pressure on the wedding, right? You want to make sure the flowers are right. You want to make sure the food is good. You know, if you're really somebody, you have an ice sculpture, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of weight on the wedding. It's, it's, and, it, and it's a lot of this kind of self-identity, self-justification weight. You want everything to be beautiful. You certainly don't want it to be mediocre. You want everything to be perfect. It says a lot about you. It, it justifies you. But this is where Jesus is so different. He's saying, look, rather than have a wedding to impress the guests, what if one of the guests came wanting to impress you? What if justification wasn't found in what you were doing, but it was actually found in in someone outside yourself, in one of the guests of the wedding? You know, this this hunt, this desire for self-righteousness and justification, it comes in so many different forms. I mean, here in Atlanta, I would say, Blake and I always say, you know, you know how you justify yourself in Atlanta? You, uh, you know, at least kind of among like the white collar working class, you, you know, you make deals, right? You go on great vacations and you remodel your house, right? So if you want to impress people at a party, you got to talk about one of those three things, right? I just made this deal, just went on this great vacation. Of course, we're in the remodeling right now, right? That's, that's what people are doing. But there's more than, you know, Atlanta's kind of a deal self-justification city, Washington, D.C. It's a, it's a power justification city. You know, how do you justify yourself in Washington, D.C.? You say, well, I'm close with this senator. I'm close with the, this administration or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm in a position of power. There's virtue signaling justification, right? You wanna prove that you're affirming or proud or woke or sensitive, right? I wanna put all these things around to say, I am righteous. I have done the righteous thing. Of course, there's religious justification. Are you active enough? Are you really doing something that proves that you're religious or good or pure before God? And this was this crowd. I mean, they're at a wedding feast. And what's at the wedding feast? This is interesting. They have the six purification jars at the wedding feast, right? They wanted to prove that they were ceremonially clean. They didn't want anybody to be unclean at their party. Now, what's interesting about this, we learned that the the jars actually didn't have any water in them, right? So this is like the ultimate virtue signal, right? They've got the jars, but nobody can actually wash themselves with the stone jars that are at the wedding. Another interesting thing about this, and I think John pays attention, just in case you think I'm reaching at straws here, I, I think that John is careful to give us this detail for a reason. There's only six stone jars, The six throughout the Bible has always been the number of incompletion, of incompleteness. Seven is the number of wholeness. This goes back all the way to the very beginning of Scripture. God created the world in seven days. And then he rested. There was a sense of wholeness in the creation of seven. But six is not quite complete. It's not quite justified. It's not quite satisfied. It's not quite righteous. You know, in the same Madonna interview that I quoted earlier, she said, all of my will 
has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past it for one spell and discover myself to be a special human being. And then I get on another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again. And I have to find a way to get myself out of that again and again and again. Can any of y'all identify with Madonna? You know, just, just when you feel like, okay, I've finally done something that's interesting. I've finally done something that people are gonna be proud of me for. And then it, well, then somebody else does something more interesting <laughs> or people kind of forget about it. You gotta kind of prove to yourself, okay, I really am someone and again and again and again. Whether it's making deals or being affirming or staying pure, it's never quite enough. You always need to be doing just a little bit more. Now, what's interesting about this, here we have John giving us the detail of the six stone water jars that so represent this Jewish uh, law-giving system of righteousness. But next to this, you have Jesus doing something. And, and when he's doing it is important. And, I, and I'll be honest, I didn't, I've never noticed this until this week at our, at our teaching meeting. If you look at chapter one, all throughout chapter one, John is very concerned with what day it is, okay? Go, go look, flip over to chapter one with me real quick and just, just look at it. it in verse uh, 29, verse 35, and verse 43, what does John say? He repeats a phrase over and over again, the next day. That's interesting here. You have the next, you have the original day, okay? And then we have three the next days. So the next day, the second day, the next day, the third day, the next day, the fourth day. So we're on the fourth day. And then how does chapter two begin? On the third day. Now, that's actually a little misleading. It's not, it's, it's a, there's a translation kind of issue there. It's meant to be read and then three days later. I mean, we're already on the fourth day, right? In fact, Eugene Peterson, I went and looked at all the translations. They all, they don't miss it, but they just don't say it in a way that most English readers would understand. But in the paraphrase version of the Bible, Eugene Peterson's The Message, he writes three days later. So that's, that's how this is supposed to be written. Three days later, on the third day after that, is kind of what you would say. On the third day after that, Jesus was at a wedding. Now, what's interesting about that is this. The first day, three of the next days, we're at the fourth day, then three days later. What day is this? What is John doing in this narrative? What is John doing in all of chapter one? I mean, how does he begin the whole book in the beginning? What John is doing here in his gospel is he is retelling the story of creation. He is saying something as powerful as creation has come, a new kind of creation has come in this world of incomplete self-justification. Christ has come right in the middle of that to bring a party, to bring a celebration because finally completeness wholeness, true righteousness, a righteousness apart from the law, as Paul says in Romans 3, has come. And you in him can be justified. You can be whole. And all these little attempts that we try to justify ourselves that always end up leaving us wanting more and more and more. Jesus has come into the middle of that and said, hold on, you've been trying to impress other people. You've been trying to impress God. Now let me impress you. And let me show you a real righteousness, a real wholeness, a real 
life. So we've learned what Jesus is like. We've learned how he is different. But third, what is he doing? This is a really interesting story for so many reasons. But look at verse three. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, Jesus' response for a long time in my life was kind of troubling to me. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Upon first reading, it feels a little disrespectful toward Jesus' mother, but I I don't think we're supposed to see that in the text. In fact, a commentator I looked at this week said, you know, the the address woman here would be better kind of understood as madam or lady. It's the same actually address that Jesus gives his mother in John 19 when he is entrusting her into the care of John. So I don't think you should read disrespect into this, but what's really bothering about it is that he says, my hour or my time has not yet come. But almost as soon as he says this in verse six, we see him turning water into wine, creating 150 gallons of wine. What happened? (laughs) What happened? Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And then he does this most amazing miracle. What what is going on here? Does Jesus like see a sad Galilean who didn't get a glass of wine? He says, you know what? I wasn't gonna begin the ministry now, but I want that guy to have some fun. Is that what's going on here? No, I I don't think so. I think the decisions of the most influential person in all the history of the world and the son of God are a little more calculated than that. I think when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, we're, we're supposed to see something. John's giving us a signal of something. You know, I love going to weddings. And when you go to a wedding, you know what you do? If you're married, you always think about your own wedding, right? You're married folks, you go to a wedding, you think back, oh, I got married May 23rd, 2009. So whenever I go to a wedding, I think, oh man, May 23rd, 2009, it was so fun. All my friends were there. I was so nervous, but so excited. I made these vows. That's one of the reasons it's good to go to a wedding. It's good to think about your own wedding. You know, I used to go to weddings and identify with the groom, but here's a sign that I'm getting older. Now I go and I identify with the father of the bride, you know, that poor guy. And, uh, you know, I got a daughter and I'm thinking, man, is, is, is my daughter, am I really gonna do this? Is Emriana gonna marry an boy, I don't know. Anyway, I got a lot of mental work to do there. But anyway, when you go to a wedding, you think about your wedding. But you know who else, you know who thinks about their wedding more than even the married people? It's the single people at a wedding, right? You single folks, I'm, I'm getting some knots, right? I, I, you, you, man, you're like the bridesmaid, right? And you, you're excited about being the bridesmaid, I guess. But you're kind of looking over and you're like, when, when's, when am I going to be the bride? When do I get that moment? You're the groom and, you know, you're happy to be there and there's some cute bridesmaids over there, but you're thinking like, maybe one of them could be my bride someday. When you go to a wedding, you think about your wedding. When am I going to be the center of this thing? When am I going to have this party? When am I going to finally fall in love? And here's what you think. When is it finally going to be my time When is my hour going to come? Here you have Jesus at a wedding thinking about his own wedding. Look at Revelation 19 with me. 
hear this about the wedding of Jesus. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, verse six, the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You know what the, if you're a Christian, you know what your ultimate hope is? It's to be invited to the marriage supper of God. I just want to say this. If you're any person, you know what your hope should be? Is to be invited to the marriage supper of God on the day of days when Jesus has redeemed all things, made all things new, wiped away every tear from every eye, has brought perfect justice, has made all things well, when he has finally called to himself his bride. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the hope of the Christian, I want you to hear this. If you are in Christ, you don't just get invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb as a guest. You get invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride, as the one who is honored, as the one who is cherished, as the one who has been made righteous, clothed in white linen. I love going to weddings. They're a lot of fun, but this is the wedding that you wanna get invited to. The feast of feasts, the celebration of celebration when Christ is finally joined with his bride. Jesus is at this wedding thinking about his wedding. And you could say it this way, the ministry of Jesus begins at a wedding and then ends at a wedding. The ministry of our Lord is bookended by weddings. And this is the moment. This is the moment when his ministry begins. And the ultimate wedding awaits you if you were in Christ. You were made to be with God. You were made to be righteous in God. This is the purpose of your creation and all that has been lost in sin, but Christ has come and he began this work at this wedding and he still is doing it now and he will do it until his final wedding. Christ has come to restore what was lost by sin and to invite you and me in to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what Jesus is like, he's the Lord of the feast. How Jesus is different in this world, it says justify yourself. He's the one that comes to the party and brings justification for you. What is he doing? He's gathering for himself a bride from every tongue and tribe and language and people, and he is preparing them to be with him forever. But finally, how do we get in on it? <laughs> how do you get the invitation? Don't you wanna be invited to this? Don't you wanna be a part of this? 
In this broken and sorrowful world where each new mourn, new widows cry, new widows howl, new babies cry, new sorrows strike the face, strike the cheek of heaven. Don't you want to be in on this? Here's how you get in, and I think it's in verse 5. <laughs> I love this verse. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You know, Matt Nolan at our teaching meeting this week, uh, he, he had a great insight. He was, he was saying it's interesting, and it is interesting that when the wine runs out at the party, Mary goes to Jesus. I mean, Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And it's kind of a good question. It's like, I'm just a guest at the party. Like, you know, go talk to the people, right? Go talk to the people putting on the party. Why are you coming to me? But you know what? Mary knew. Mary knew. She, she had been watching Jesus. She had seen Jesus. Obviously, the angel had come to her and said, this is going to be the Messiah, but it's more than that. There was a character in him. There was a goodness in him. There was a, there was a sense of authority that he must have had. And she knew. And so she said to the servants, whatever he tells you, you do it. This is faith. This is saving faith. You know, to, to enter into the Christian life is repentance and faith. It's to turn away from the other things that you're trusting in, from the other voices that you're listening to. Something is saying, do this, and you're doing it. Saving faith is to say, the voice that I'm really gonna listen to is the voice of Christ. The voice that I'm really gonna not say no to is the voice of Jesus. Whatever he says, I'm gonna do it. And Mary had come to this. She had considered his life. She had heard who he was, but she had considered his life. She saw him and she fell in love with him and she trusted him. And this is what it means to be a believer. This is what it means for you to be a believer. It means the same thing. Do you trust him? Are you aligning your life with him? Are you listening to his voice? Whatever he says, do it. To be a Christian is to realize that the wisdom of Christ is greater than your wisdom. The way of Christ is greater than your way of life. The life that Christ offers is so much greater than any life you could have without him. And here's the deal. I want you to hear this. Oh, church, hear this. As you look to him, this is why we need worship. This is why we're here. This is why we're here. As you look to him, as you consider his life, as you consider his life, as you consider his way of life, as you read the gospel of John and fall in love with him, you will realize that the righteousness that is true of him is so much better than any righteousness this world offers. It's so much more inviting. It's so much more complete. As you consider his death, you will realize that the death of Christ gives you such complete forgiveness. You know, we live in an anxious age. We live in a way, people know that they've sinned, they know they're separated from God and they're trying to do something to prove themselves. Part of that is penance. We don't talk about it in those terms, but part of justification is just penance because we know we've done something wrong. When you consider the cross, you will realize that Jesus offers a complete forgiveness that separates your sin from you as far as the East is from the West. It is finished. The work is done on the cross. And it, but that kind of forgiveness is not found in any sort of anxious righteousness that you may pursue. It's found in looking to Jesus. And when you consider his resurrection, when you consider his resurrection, you look to the party, you look to the life, you look to life in him. 
And that prom- the promise of that life is so much greater than any promise of life that anything in this world will give you. As you consider him like Mary did, you'll be the kind of person that says, whatever he says, <laughs> whatever he says, I'm going to do it. It always makes sense. I may think it's a little strange. He wants us to get wine, but I'm going to fill the, pure, the religious items with water. But you know what? He's right. I'm going to do it. Is that where you are? Have you considered him in the fullness of his righteousness and the power of his death and the joy of his resurrection? Have you considered these things? Has it changed your heart? Has it changed your life? And so as we close today, I want to invite you to consider with me all of these things that Jesus promises. And, and one of the ways that Jesus has told us to remember him, that he's given us to consider him is with the Lord's Supper. And so in just a few moments, our deacons are gonna be passing out elements and Jordan's gonna come up and lead us in singing, but we're gonna be passing out bread and wine. These represent the life, work, ministry of Jesus. And so I invite you, if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, if you want your life to be aligned with Jesus, and if you've let that be known through baptism, then I invite you to take these elements. I also wanna just say to you, if you're not a believer, if you're here just visiting the church or kind of considering the things of Christianity, I am so glad you're here, but this is a sacred meal. This is, you dishonor the things that we hold dear by taking this meal if you don't really love Jesus, if you're not really believing him. And as you consider these things, as God in his power brings sin to mind in your life, things that are separating you from fellowship with Christ, as God in his power maybe brings something that he's saying to you, something he's calling you toward to mind, be obedient, confess that sin, look to Christ, take steps of obedience, even as we consider these elements. I'm gonna invite you to hold on to them as they are passed, and then we'll take them corporately after Jordan leads us in this song. Let's stand together.